We're in a season of suffering. More than a million people that we know of are suffering from a deadly disease that didn't even exist five months ago. More than 55,000 people have died from that disease. And of course, that's just a fraction of the suffering that has resulted from this virus. I wonder what the graph would look like if we could measure the level of anxiety, another kind of suffering. And then there's the economic cost and the anxiety about that. Most of the cost we're experiencing economically so far is anxiety about the economy. might even be more than the anxiety about the disease. In the United States, there are about 250,000 confirmed cases of the disease, but nearly 10 million people have applied to the government for unemployment benefits in the last two weeks. Those are people who've lost their jobs. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Six months ago, the world's economy was growing well and nearly everyone everywhere had some position to participate in that growth. But now, I've noticed, you probably have too, that when life crashes, people start asking questions. Where's God? Does God care? Is he sleeping? Is he aware of our situation? What's the Christian answer to all this? Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I used to think I could escape the grim duty of preaching at funerals. Then my six-year-old niece was killed in a, by a drunk driver. Does God care? Is he sleeping? Where's God when a six-year-old dies, or a 19-year-old, or a 27-year-old, or a 97-year-old for that matter? When life crashes, people want answers. This morning I want to look at these questions in the light of a little story from the Gospel of Mark, the life of Jesus. From this story we're going to make three, four maybe, Simple observations. The first, number one, you are perishing and there's nothing you can do about it. Number two, unlike you, Jesus can do something about it. And number three, to get the right answer, the answer to the problem of death, you gotta write, you gotta ask the right question. So, first, you are perishing, and there's nothing you can do about it. Two, Jesus, unlike you, can do something about it. And three, if you're gonna get the right answer to this question, this issue of death, you need to ask the right question. So, 
Uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there and read along with me. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? By the time Jesus was finished teaching that day, it was late afternoon, he suggested to his disciples they head across the lake. <clears throat> now, this trip, it's the Sea of Galilee. It's about six or seven miles to the other side. So if they rowed hard or got a good sail, they might just get across before dark. Have you ever been out on a lake or out on the sea even while the sun was going down? If you have, you know it's a very soothing and meditative experience, very peaceful. And I imagine the steady slosh, you know, the oars in the water would be uh, kind of hypnotic, so Jesus was asleep. There's a deck on the back of these boats for casting nets, and he was back there on a cushion, went to sleep. It's a long day. As they headed east, the disciples would have the, the perfect view of the sunset over the mountains of Galilee. Wish I could have been there. Would have been beautiful. But as the sun went down, the wind came up. Now, the Sea of Galilee is notorious for its sudden windstorms. They still happen today. Uh, the relatively cool air on the Golan Heights on the northeastern shore of the lake can create a sudden inversion. And the hot airs around the lake, very hot, humid air, and the cold air on the mountain just comes falling down off the mountain. And the resulting storm develops in about 20 minutes on the water. There was a storm like this in 1997. It blew waves as high as 10 feet ashore on the town of Tiberias, on the, on the I guess it's the eastern or the western coast of the sea. Now, this boat they were riding in is not a big boat. 
a typical Galilean fishing boat was about 27 feet long. It's not made for going on the sea. It's made for going on a lake. It's about seven feet wide, and if it was sitting on dry land, it'd be about this high, four feet high. I used to own a, my brother and I used to own a, a little boat for cruising around on the lake. It was 21 feet long, about seven feet. It was about the size of one of these. We used it for water skiing. Now, they're about two or three miles, maybe halfway across the lake. As the sun sets, the little boat sank into the shadows. Peaceful sloshing of the oars was overwhelmed by the howl of the wind. In a matter of minutes, the disciples were rowing for their lives. If they were, if they were lucky, the storm would blow by them quickly. But if it lasted long enough to create even, even a three-foot swell, they'd be in serious trouble, and they were not lucky. Pretty soon, water was washing over the side, as we read. Then it was coming in faster than they could bail it out. The disciples, these are experienced fish, well, some of them are experienced fishermen. They know this lake. And they know that in about 10 minutes they'll be swimming, and that means that before long they'll be drowning. At some point, somebody noticed that Jesus is asleep. <laughs> I, I just want you to imagine, if you're in this panic, we're about to drown mode, and you look back and there's the guy sleeping, how, how, how would this help? might increase your panic. And that is apparently what happened, so they go wake him up. I don't imagine it was gentle. They wake him up and they say, we're about to die. They shake him, they're screaming over the wind. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? How can you sleep? Now that question, don't you care, that is not, that's an angry question. Don't you care that we're perishing? Of course, they're having what I would call a normal reaction. When people come face to face with death, they tend to panic. And they almost automatically begin to question God. Our mortality can confront us suddenly and seems kind of random even at times. People naturally wonder if God even exists. If he exists, does he care? Today, our mortality rate is right in our faces. Perhaps you're watching this because this pandemic has raised questions in your mind. Questions about God. Maybe you're asking, why would God allow something like this to happen? Maybe you find yourself angry at God, like the disciples screaming, don't you care that we're perishing? You know what I find strange, though? The thing I find odd is this, 
the fact that we're not screaming all the time. In fact, every one of us right this minute, sitting in your comfy chair watching me on some kind of internet device, every one of us is in the exact same predicament those disciples were in, and not because of this virus. We are perishing, and we're powerless to do anything about it. This is always true, but it seems like we need a phone call from a policeman or a doctor or maybe the funeral of a young person or right now a deadly pandemic to remind us of the truth of our situation. I knew a guy named Joel. He served with the Navy SEALs in Desert Storm in Iraq. And he told a story one time. One day he was in the tent. They set up for taking showers. And while he's taking a shower, the camp he was in was attacked. So he's in the tent, the shower tent. He can't see anything, but he could hear the firefight. He could hear the people running around yelling, and there's nothing but a sheet of canvas between him and the bullets. Now, Joel said he, that experience brought him to a clear realization of the imminence of death. He could die at any moment. Now, clearly, he did not die that day because he told us the story. My father served in Vietnam in combat and uh, flew airplanes. He flew airplanes that came back with bullet holes in, in the planes when he got back to the base. He... Uh, survived that experience, and then he passed away in a flying accident when he was flying for fun, when he was not much older than I am now. This is our common reality. We are perishing. There's nothing we can do about it. About that story that my friend Joel told, there was uh, I, when he was telling this story, I was there with my friend Larry Stack. Some of you know Larry Stack. He's an emergency room doctor. And while we're listening to that story, he leaned over and he says to me, you know, more people died driving down the road in Tennessee, that's where we were, that year than they did serving in Iraq. In Iraq, a place where people were actively trying to kill them, less people died than just driving around going about their business every day. As of Friday, <clears throat> this virus, COVID-19, had taken the lives of about 56,000 people. That's a lot, isn't it? Over the last six months. Since, since the disease arrived, it's killed just about 56,000 people. In the regular course of events, every day, every day, with or without this virus, more than 153,000 people die every day. Not every six months. Now, Please don't misunderstand. I'm certainly not trying to say that 
we don't need to take this disease very seriously, all the things we're doing. There's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm simply making the point that death is all around us all the time. It's every day. You see, it's not the fact that we're living on the brink of death that changes. That's always true. The thing that changes is our awareness of that fact. Most of the time, we just ignore it. But when you get on a boat in the middle of the storm and the waves are coming over and the boat is sinking, you suddenly are dealing with it face to face. Today, because of this deadly pandemic, we can't ignore it. Now, I think that's a good thing. It's better to be uh, honest than to be in denial. And the Bible suggests that we should try to maintain our awareness of our impending demise. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man to ever live wrote these words. This is Ecclesiastes 7.2. It's better to go to a funeral than to a feast. Would you rather go to a funeral or a feast? But he's saying it's better. For death is the conclusion of every man and living, and the living should take this to heart. In Jonathan Edwards' great list of resolutions, number nine is, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstance which attends death. Does that seem kind of morbid to you? <laughs> uh, what good did he imagine would come from dwelling on his own dying? It certainly did not keep it from happening. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, what an irony. He died suddenly at a fairly young age. He was in his 50s from the side effects of a smallpox vaccine. <laughs> in other words, he was in the middle of the exact same kind of thing we're in the middle of now, and they had a vaccine. And he, a leader of people, wanted to encourage people to take the vaccine. So he took the vaccine and the smallpox in his dose wasn't as dead as it needed to be, and it killed him. You see, he was perishing, and there was nothing he could do about it. You're perishing. There's nothing you can do about it. We're all going to die. Now, what I said was, there's nothing you can do about it. I did not say nothing can be done. You're perishing, you're powerless to do anything about it, but unlike you, Jesus Christ can do something. Let's go back to our story. So, Jesus, rudely awakened by the angry, yelling disciples, in spite of the catastrophic events he's suddenly aware of, he did not join the panic. Look at the text. 
there isn't a, a hint of fear or even surprise in Jesus. He doesn't jump up and say, oh no, what will we do? He calmly takes command of the situation. Well, here's the thing. Jesus is always in command of every situation. How can we account for his unnatural calmness? (laughs) Well, being who he was and knowing who he was, Jesus is just not threatened by the situation. He knew they weren't going to die because, unlike the disciples, he was not powerless. Unlike us, he's not powerless. Before the disciples could wonder what might happen next, Jesus addressed the wind and the sea. He says, hush. I imagine him saying it kind of like that. Hush, enough already. Be still. And because he is who he is, the wind died down and the lake became perfectly calm. And this, of course, is the central theological point of this story. It's a demonstration of Jesus' identity. Jesus clearly demonstrates his divinity by calming the sea and the wind. Uh, This is the point of the whole book of Mark, actually. It's announced in the very first verse of Mark where the title is given, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The disciples were perishing and powerless, but unlike the disciples, Jesus could do something about the situation. You're perilous and pow- you're perishing and powerless. Unlike you, Jesus can do something about that. But getting the right answer depends on getting the right question. Now, Jesus calms the storm. Hush, be still. Suddenly they're on mirror water. At this point, the disciples have fallen back into their seats with their mouths hanging open. But think about what Jesus says next. This is verse 40. He said to them, why are you such cowards? Nobody else would have described these men as cowards. And I'm, I'm translating to give you the effect when he says, what are you, why are you afraid? He's basically calling them chickens. Why are you such cowards? How is it, he says, that you still have no faith? Now, a minute ago, I was noticing how normal the panic of the disciples was. It seemed totally reasonable to me. But here's the thing. Jesus noticed that that normal reaction revealed a lack of faith. He's, in effect, saying to them, you need to understand who I am. You need to believe in me. 
If you did, you would know that being with me is the safest place in the world. Whatever might be happening. Now, I just want to notice three things Jesus did in this threatening situation. First of all, because he is who he is. He's the eternal son of God. Storms, not a problem. He remained calm. Second, he demonstrated who he was, the son of God. He did this by calming the storm and saving their lives. By the way, that was more about showing who he was than it was about saving them. But anyway, third, he challenged the disciples to have faith in who he was. Well, the disciples were awestruck. The scripture says now they're afraid. Wait, I thought their problem was solved. Did you read? They were afraid already before. Then Jesus calms the storm and he says, why are you so afraid? And they were filled. This is verse 41 filled with great fear. <clears throat> They're more afraid now than they were of the storm. Great fear. Their panic over the storm was replaced with another, a deeper fear, a fear that fastened their minds to the most important question a person can ask. Who is this Jesus? Then they made an observation, which is the answer to the question. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, <clears throat> this is the fear of the Lord they're having now. The fear that's the basis of wisdom, like we talked about last week. The fear that forms the heart of worship. The fear that understands who Jesus is and believes in him. You see, in the Old Testament, only one can calm the wind in the storm. That's God. Eventually, asking the right question, who is this Jesus, led these men to a full understanding of the answer. So if we were to look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27... We'd read this. This question comes up again in the book of Mark. Who is this? Jesus went, I'm reading now Mark 8, 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answering for all of them, says, you are the Christ, and we read in the book of Matthew, the Son of the living God. You see, the identity of Jesus is the most important question. And if we're going to receive an answer to the problem of death, we've got to ask that question. That movement from panic to trust in Christ is exactly what you need today. 
I don't even know who you are, but it doesn't matter. It's what we all need. We need to move from panic to trust in Christ. In our current situation, people will go two different ways. Our current situation is our current situation no matter when this message is preached. We're all facing death and it can happen to any one of us at any time. And people, when they become aware of this, they go one of two ways. They either turn away from God in unbelief and anger. This is the atheist who says, all this suffering in the world proves God doesn't exist. Or they will turn to God in faith and receive refuge and comfort. Our God is a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, a fortress, we read in the book of Proverbs. The righteous run to it and are safe. (laughs) We're tempted to turn away or we might turn to God in faith. Here's the thing, when death is staring us in the face, all our fence-setting, death-denying middle ground that we like to occupy is taken away, taken out from under us. So right now, I invite you, choose faith. Trust God. Run to the strong tower. We're still missing a piece here. If this was all we had of the story, you know, Jesus saving the disciples' lives by calming the storm, it wouldn't help us much. Their lives were spared that day, but they all died eventually. The solution to this problem of death needs more. It requires that ultimate demonstration of Jesus' power over death, the resurrection. Paul wrote in Romans 1.4 that in the resurrection, Jesus was declared, it says, declared to be the Son of God with power. And Jesus, who rose from the dead, promises resurrection to eternal life to anyone and everyone who simply trusts him to do it. This completely removes what 1 Corinthians calls the sting of death. When people are screaming at God, don't you care that we're perishing? God shouts back, he is risen. You see, that's the answer to the question, the first question. Don't you care? The answer is, Jesus is in the boat. The answer is, he has died too, and he has risen. When we frantically try try to bail the storm out of our sinking little boat, only one thing gives real hope. 
Only one thing calls me to faith. He is risen. This is the first day of Holy Week, the week of the celebration of the atonement and the resurrection of Jesus, in which we are reconciled to the living God by his death and his resurrection. He is risen. That is not a metaphor or some kind of spiritual reality only is his body that was dead got up again and is risen and he is a living man right this minute at the right hand of the Father in heaven making intercession for his children. This most giant fact is the final answer to the question, who is this man? that even the sea and the wind obey him. He's the one who rose from the dead and promises the same resurrection to everyone who puts their trust in him. So, three propositions. <clears throat> You're perishing. There's nothing you can do about it. Unlike you, Jesus can do something about it. Let me rephrase that a little bit. Jesus has done something about it. Three, if you're going to get the right answer to this question, the question of death, you've got to ask the right question, which is, who is Jesus? And the exact content of the answer is, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and promises the same resurrection to all who trust in him. Now, you need to listen carefully because there's a grave danger in what we've said so far. The danger is you might think that the resurrection somehow just automatically applies to everyone. It does not. You see, up till now, I've glossed over the one part of the story that is absolutely critical before he rose from the dead, Jesus died. He is all the way in the boat with us. The one who has in himself the power of life and death died. What? Why was that necessary? The only path to resurrection is death. But why doesn't Jesus just save us all from death altogether? <clears throat> why did he need to die? To bring us life after death. <clears throat> well, we began with the simple proposition that we are, one and all, dying. But we didn't say why. The Bible puts it plainly, the wages of sin is death and calls us already, tells us already that we are, quote, dead in our trespasses and sins. You're dying because you're a sinner. We all die because we sinned. You might think, I'm not a bad person, but the standard is higher than you think. And unless something is done, something you can't do for yourself, you will be dying forever. What's been done was the death of Jesus Christ. Scripture says God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's been a great substitution. When Jesus died having no sin of his own, he died for our sin. It's only through his death that we can have the hope of resurrection. His death is the only solution for our death problem. Because Jesus died for sinners, you have the opportunity to turn from sin and death to resurrection and righteousness, to turn from self-reliance and faulty goodness to reliance on Christ and his perfect righteousness and his sacrifice. This is what it means to trust him. It's only those who trust him who participate in his resurrection. He doesn't force this on you. You have to receive it. The boat is swamped, and you cannot row yourself to safety. You need to turn to the one who can save you. Now, if you need more explanation (laughs) or a better explanation, I hope you'll let me know. Or reach out to someone else who knows Christ. Please don't walk around in this dangerous world without knowing the Savior. For those of you who are confident that you have a place in this resurrection because you have cast yourself entirely onto the care of Christ, let me close with this. Who is this man Jesus is still the most important question you can ask even if you've known who he is for a hundred years. Because he's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who leads you in the new life. Therefore, as we read in Romans 12, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Let us fix our eyes on the pioneer and the finisher, the first one to cross the finish line of faith, the finish line of the resurrection. Let us fix our eyes, trust ourselves, walk after our great Savior. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for your great goodness to us in Christ. Uh, Lord, it's something we do not deserve. It's just a question of your goodness and grace. Lord, I pray that in this time in which we are confronting the reality of our mortality, this would be a time when we receive this answer to that great question, the answer of the 
death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, I pray that many would believe and receive this uh, eternal life that you've provided for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.